notes up here properly. I've, uh, I've been very conscious this week as I've been prepping this message that Christianity in its core is a transformative religion. It's a faith that promises great change and, and hope. And, uh, and as I've been thinking through what the Lord would want for us this morning, um, I've also been very aware of what's been going on in the news. I, I, obviously, being from the area of uh, the Manchester bombing, I was very impacted this week by what happened there and, uh, and all that the media uh, was, uh, was sharing about that. But then I did, a, I did a quick Google and found that in the last week, there have been 13 bombings in our world connected to terrorism and ISIS. 13. Uh, the last one that I'm aware of, and maybe there's been something else happened in the last day or two, was the many Christians killed in Egypt on their way to retreat by two gunmen came onto their buses and opened fire and, and, uh, and just many, many killed. And, you know, just across those 13 bombings, there's hundreds injured, 80 plus dead, many of them children. Just sometimes feels like it's utterly hopeless. And what do we do in response? You know, the emergency services heroically run towards the danger. Our heads shake, our anger builds, our blood is donated. Charities and churches lend a hand. Communities rebuild. Funerals take place. Tears are shed. Governments meet. World leaders make speeches and look for photo opportunities. Celebrities make statements from their mansions. Ceasefires are negotiated. And to encourage peace, more bombs are dropped and missiles fired. The media clamors for coverage. Facebook posts are shared by a generation believing that that's all that it takes. And tweets are also shared. And another bomb goes off and more children die. And then we get into a loop and it all happens again. And, and so as I've been prepping this message, I've shared with this with you before that as I come to every scripture, there's this overwhelming question that comes to my mind every time I prepare a message. This is great, Glenn. This is exciting. This is in, enjoyable to study, enjoyable to preach. But the question that comes up always is two words. So what? How does this message lead to us being transformed and changed, and not only as individuals, but also as, as a community, as a, as a city, as a world? As I read this dreadful circumstances happening in our world, and I look at Christianity and all the promises that Christianity promises, I say to myself, okay, how do we as Christians respond to this? What should our response be? What hope do we have? What can we communicate to people around us as they shake their heads and they get angry and get upset at religion and group Christianity into that grouping that, well, if we could just get rid of all religion, then all the bombings would stop, even though a small uh, research into the history of the world would show you that far more people have been killed on the back of humanism and atheism than religion. But how do we communicate the hope that we have? Where is the hope? Because people don't have any hope. What they do is they look to people and societies and to uh, committees and to uh, they, 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 they shake their head, they wag their finger, they look and hope that maybe, maybe, maybe one day our Christmas prayer will be answered and there will be peace for all 
mankind. Now, you might think, Glenn, you're being really cynical, but actually, as I read this scripture, I started being filled once again with the uh, remembrance of the hope that we have as Christians. And you're going to read this scripture with me in a second. You're going to go, really? I, I don't see the hope here. Which is why I'm excited to share it with you. Because this scripture is saturated with hope. Mark chapter 13, verse 24. But in those days, after that tribulation, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will be falling from heaven and the powers in the heaven will be shaken. And then they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. And then He will send out the angels and gather His elect from the four winds and from the ends of the earth to the ends of the heaven. From the fig tree, learn its lesson. As soon as its branch becomes tender and puts out its leaves, you know that summer is near. So also, when you see these things taking place, you know that He is near. At the very gates, truly, I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. Verse 32. But concerning that day or that hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Be on guard. Keep awake. For you do not know when the time will come. It is like a man going on a journey when he leaves the home and puts his servants in charge, each with his work, and commands the doorkeeper to stay awake. Therefore, stay awake. For you do not know when the master of the house will come in the evening or at midnight or when the rooster crows or in the morning, lest he suddenly come and find you asleep. And when I say to you, I say to all, stay awake. This is one of the many scriptures in the New Testament that refer to what Christians would say is the second coming of Jesus Christ, the uh, the second coming of Jesus, and and what is fascinating is that is that historically um, the Christian Church has had an understandable interest in when Jesus is coming back, and and I was trying to think when the last time was that I heard a message about when Jesus is coming back. It's been a few years, and maybe for you, this might be the first time you're hearing a message about the second coming of Jesus. Because generally speaking, Christians who are, uh, how do I put it, would, would, would be proud to say that they weren't too crazy, would generally stay away from predicting when Jesus is coming back. Because like me, I'm sure many of you have been embarrassed when something hits the news that the end of the world is coming on October the 26th, 2018. Write that down. No, I'm joking, don't. And we go, oh no, here we go again. And the date comes and it goes and fingers are pointed and laughs are shared and mainly from me. And we go, is that what the second coming of Jesus is all about? Trying to predict when he's coming. In fact, many years ago, and I shared this in my email this week, I was preaching in Croatia, and um, I was I was maybe 20, 21 years old. And I was preaching at a family camp in the middle of the mountains, beautiful, what used to be Yugoslavia, pretty much uh, just after the war had finished. And uh, and there there I was preaching, and at the end of my sermon, I I was stood praying for people, and I had my interpreter with me, and we're praying over people. It was this very sincere. Older gentleman came, wanted to share with me something that he felt was very, very important. And what it was, was that he said that Jesus had appeared to him in a dream, 
had told him when he was returning and that he was to tell the young British preacher the date that Jesus was coming back. And so uh, I listened and, you know, I, I obviously was respectful and I was kind. I asked if I could pray for the gentleman and he was very insistent. I wrote the date down, so I wrote the date down, put it into my Bible and and uh, and obviously the day came and went unless we missed it, in which we were all in trouble. And uh, um, And I always remember that story. This man was so sincere. And yet the scripture clearly says, no one knows. <laughs> No one knows. There is actually one command in this passage. (coughs) And it's this. Stay awake. Be ready. Don't predict. Don't be going, oh, well, there's this many members of NATO. And it says that there's going to be this rising out of the sea in Daniel. And Ezekiel says this. And Revelation says that. And blah, blah, blah. Because honestly, you can get so bogged down in it that actually you miss the central core message of this scripture, which is stay awake. It's Christianity is about transformed lives and hope. How is this passage connected with hope when it comes to the world that is clearly broken? I want to show you by basically asking two questions this morning. First of all, when we think about the teaching of the second coming, the first question is, is it important? Is this teaching important? Do we really need to think about the second coming of Jesus Christ? Especially in the light of all the teaching, and I use teaching very loosely when it comes to what the second coming will look like. And maybe some of you have been quite passionate about reading and predicting, and I don't want to be critical of you. All I would say is caution you that that is not the weight of Jesus' teaching. The weight of Jesus' teaching is to be ready, and yet he does teach on the second coming. For a reason. Is this teaching important? Yes, it is. How do I think that it's important? Well, Jesus said it, and that's good enough for me. There's two comings when it comes to Jesus. There's the first coming of Jesus that we love to celebrate every year at Christmas. That It's when the, you know, the star in the east was bright. And then there's the second coming of Jesus that we read about in Mark 13, where the star in the east is not bright. The star in the east is actually falling, and there's earthquakes, and there's chaos, and it's not very Christmassy. It's not something you want to send a card about. Hey, look, the world's coming to an end. You know, it's, uh, it, it's, a, it's a problem. Let's celebrate. But is this teaching important? Yes, it is. But historically, there's been two approaches to what Jesus says here. The first one, and this is very common, is that Jesus was a good man, a good teacher, but he's wrong about this. He's wrong. Why do they think he's wrong? Well, it says in verse 30, and I hopefully have the scriptures and the points appearing behind me, it says in verse 30, Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. And they'll go, ah, ha, ha, Jesus is wrong. Because that generation did pass away, these things did not take place, therefore, Jesus is wrong. The other response to this passage is that people say it's symbolic, that he's not talking about actually him coming back himself, At some point in the future, he's referring to the Holy Spirit coming upon that generation. So therefore, before this generation uh, passes away, the Holy Spirit will come. And so it's either that Jesus was wrong or or it was symbolic. So here's the problem with both those approaches. 
First of all, in Mark 13, verse 4, I want you to look at these scriptures. It says this, tell us when these things will be. And what will be the sign when all these things are about to be accomplished? This was a question that the disciples asked Jesus at the beginning of Mark chapter 13 in reference to the destruction of the temple. When will these things, that word things in the Greek is exactly the same word things that Jesus says in verse 30. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. In reference to the question the disciples were asking when it comes to the temple destruction. It's very important that you understand that. Because indeed the temple was destroyed at AD 70 before that generation passed away. So Jesus wasn't wrong. He was just answering the question they asked. And the symbolism question about the Holy Spirit is answered by the verse that says, and they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. Jesus makes it personal. He makes it literal by saying, you will see me coming back. So let's push aside the, oh, well, Jesus didn't really mean what he was saying, or Jesus was just being symbolic. I want to really press the point, friends. If you're a Christian, or if you're just somebody who's exploring Christianity, we love that you're here. But I want to draw a line in the sand and tell you this. Jesus is coming back. As much as you believe that Jesus came and was born of a virgin at Christmas, and we love to celebrate that, it's exactly the same Bible, exactly the same God that says that Jesus will come back again. That's what Jesus is saying here. So is it important? Yes, it is. We're in danger constantly as Christians and and as people who study the Bible or theology in general to pick and choose the things that Jesus teaches about and emphasize them, especially if it's in keeping with our current culture. The church has a history of, 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 of responding to culture in a certain way then looking for scriptures to support their thought, and then banging on about those scriptures until the culture kind of rolls its eyes and goes, oh, please, give us a break. And then the generation shifts, and there's a new culture, and then Christians find a whole new set of scriptures, and 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 it kind of is this revolving proof texting of using the Bible, looking at Jesus' teaching in such a way that kind of reinforces what we want Jesus to say. Whereas if you're going to believe one thing Jesus says, you have to believe everything that Jesus says. So this scripture is important because Jesus said it. There is buried in this passage hope, transformation, Christianity, something that actually gives us tools to go into the world and not only face the world in victory, but actually to communicate hope because Jesus is coming back. So if you sit and think about this for a second, then you might go, well, what difference does it make to me tomorrow morning at work? What difference does it make to me this afternoon when I am talking to my non-Christian neighbor? What difference? Okay, so I struggle, maybe this is what you're thinking, I struggle with the idea of Jesus coming back because it freaks me out. I can't wrap my head around it. So I'm just going to push it aside and not think about it Because, you know, I just don't know what to think, so I'm not going to think about it. But I'm saying, no, let's get that teaching, pull it into center, 
and camp out on it for a minute and go, okay, how does this help me live my life? If it is important, and it is, and it's not symbolic, and it is going to happen, we don't know when, so what? You see how that question comes in all the time? So what? Well, it does make a difference in, in three ways. The first way it makes a difference is it makes a massive difference to me and my problems. To our problems. To our problems in the world, in our country, in our city, in our politics, in, in my neighborhood, in my street, in my house, in my family, in me. It makes a massive, massive difference to my problems. I want you to notice something that you probably skipped over, because I did. Verse 26. And they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. Let me read it again. They will see the Son of Man coming in clouds in great power and glory. In clouds. In. That word in is insanely important. Because it doesn't say they will see the Son of Man coming through clouds. Because you would expect Jesus, and if you've seen any imagery when it comes to second coming, you kind of got a picture of Jesus, blonde hair, blue eyes, white robe, blue sash on a cloud surfing down to the world. You know, with kind of angels, with trumpets, flying naked babies, the whole lot. That's what the second coming must look like. The, the, the world is going to be split apart and, and, and it's just going to be epic. But it doesn't say that Jesus is coming through clouds, on clouds, surfing around clouds. You know, it says in clouds. Why does it say that? You have to go right back to the Garden of Eden to fully understand this verse. Because I said a few weeks ago, the Garden of Eden epitomized and represented the, the glory and the presence of God, the perfection of God, the beauty of God, the rest of God, the presence of God was evident in the garden. And Adam and Eve lived in this beauty and this presence and glory of God. And it was amazing. And then sin entered the world through pride, through Adam and Eve, and the world broke. The scriptures use different terminology, but essentially that which is good gets broken. Sin Sucked into the world. God's immediate presence withdraws. And I can't go into great detail about this this week, but listen to my message from a few weeks back and you'll find that. God's presence withdraws because God cannot have anything to do with sin. And in God's absence, His presence, the Shekinah, this, this presence of God, it's not like God's His hands off the world. God is still very much in control. So don't hear me say that, because that is a whole other level of teaching that, in my opinion, is wrong. God doesn't go hands off, over to you, free will reigns. God didn't do that. I don't believe that, because I don't think the Scripture says that. But His tangible, beautiful, Eden presence withdraws. There's a difference. What does that presence look like? Well... In some ways, it's easier to look at what it doesn't look like. It doesn't look like death, disease, war, bombs, children dying. It doesn't look like hunger, abuse, injustice, poverty. In fact, in Genesis 3 verse 17, it says, Cursed be the ground, the earth, because of you, Adam and Eve, mankind. You are breaking this world. We as a culture and as a mankind 
generation upon generation have broken and are breaking. This world is cursed and there's a sin. There's a lack of the tangible presence of God. Not hands off. I'm pressing that point because I want you to make sure that you haven't heard from me that God is hands off. That he doesn't know what's going on from the next minute to the next. That's not what the Bible says. He knows the Alpha and the Omega. He knows everything. He's not hands off. But his presence where he walked with man in the garden is gone. And in its place, there's a curse. Everything that was good is now twisted and broken and terminates in and of itself. Things that God has given to us to enjoy have become ultimate idols to us and they kill us. Three really big ones in our culture would be, you look at food. Food is, oh, I love food. Yet last night we had uh, Pete Bennett and the kids come over because Tracy is um, in, in Mexico right now on missions. We had him over and I was determined I was going to eat healthily. Like, man, i got to just like, I, I don't care that you got pizza and sausage rolls and chips and oh thank you jesus i i can see this food piling up on the table and i'm going no salad and omelet for me that's the way it's going to be and then sarah said well you're going to start your omelet no i've decided i'm going to have pizza it lasted like 30 seconds. I was rubbish. And then it was apple pie and ice cream. And then it just got worse and worse. Food is wonderful. It's God-given. It's, oh, we love it. But it's become twisted and it actually leads to death. There's addiction and gluttony. And, and, and it's like that sin taking something good and breaking it in and, us, and, it, and it consuming us. You take something good like sex, you only need to look at our world to see how sex is, is broken and, and, and death. Alcohol. You can take relationships, you can take everything that God has given to us that is beautiful and good and it's been broken, it's been twisted. But, early on in the Old Testament, we see evidence of God's presence, that Shekinah presence, that same beautiful presence coming back into the Holy of Holies, the temple. And in fact, when you look at the Exodus, you can see this Shekinah glory, the immediate, beautiful, powerful presence of God being tangibly seen in the cloud in the day and the fire at night. So that cloud represented God's immediate beautiful presence, perfection in, in, in all its glory. And so when Jesus is coming in clouds, what it's referring to, look, and with great power and glory, is the Shekinah glory of God is coming back with Jesus. The perfection, the beauty, the power, the immediate presence of God is coming to make the world like Eden again. No violence no pain, no sickness, no war, no poverty. We can't even imagine what that's like. Look in verse 28. I love how Jesus uses this analogy. From the fig tree, learn its lesson. As soon as its branch becomes tender and you put out its leaves, you know that summer is near. I can say with certainty, friends, 
without looking at specific events or specific happenings in our world, without making predictions based on what I see in the media, I can say with this certainty, summer is near. Summer is near. Jesus is bringing spring and summer back to the winter. His presence and Shekinah glory will make this world perfect again. So here's a question for you when it comes to hope and faith and the coming of Jesus Christ. Here's a question. What season do you find yourself in right now? What season do you find yourself in? Maybe things are just coming together and it's beautiful and it's wonderful and and it's summer and you're excited and that's great. Maybe for you it's it's winter and boy, this is hard. I don't see any end to this situation. I don't see how I'm ever going to get out. I don't see how this shame is going to disappear. I don't see how this situation is going to be corrected. Where is your summer coming from? Because what Jesus is saying here is, I'm coming and I'm bringing summer with me. I'm coming and I'm coming in clouds of glory. And I'm going to take that which is broken and I'm going to make it not just good, but perfect again. I often think, and C.S. Lewis does some really great writing about this, and it and I always comes to my mind, I, you know, and I'm certainly in this place now, when you look at the beauty of where we live, and friends, if you've not had the opportunity to travel to some broken places in the world, let me assure you, we live in about as close as you can get, in my opinion, to heaven on earth. It is a beautiful place to live. And uh, I remember somebody saying that BC is like God's backyard. I like that. But if I can look across the lake as the sun is going down behind the west side, and the sun is kind of twinkling off the lake, and there's this warm breeze, and it sounds like I'm making this up, doesn't it? But no, this is actual Kelowna, right? And the clouds are glinting, and it's pink and orange and red, and I've got the laugh of children in the background as they play on flooded beaches. And there's nature and... Oh, wow. If it's beautiful now, can you imagine what that's going to look like when Jesus comes back? Like if a stinking, and I use my word perfectly, sinner who has no regard for Jesus, in fact hates God, can look out at a lake and have their breath taken away by the glory of that lake? How much more will it be that when Jesus comes back, that scripture that says every knee will bow at the return of Jesus? Because he's bringing back perfection. He's bringing perfection back. Change the lyric of that song. He's bringing perfection back. So food... Sex and alcohol and relationships and all the things that have become twisted and broken become new. And in Revelation, where this is talked about more, the word new in Revelation is the word kainos. Not kairos, kainos with an N, K-A-I-N-O-S. And what it means is that which is old is renewed. Not something that's completely new, but something broken, renewed. He's bringing the newness back. 
Can you see the hope? That this is going to happen. Maybe in our generation. I don't know. But it's going to happen. Maybe in your kids' generation. Maybe their kids' kids' generation. It doesn't matter. But He is making a new heaven and a new earth. So let me just give you what could be a month of teaching in 30 seconds. When you die and God, then there's judgment day and the earth comes to an end, we don't all live in heaven. Some of you are like, what? It's true. There's nothing in the Scriptures that say that you and I are going to spend eternity in heaven. Heaven in that relationship is actually referred to as new earth, new heaven. We're going to be here, but it's going to be perfect, and it's going to be like heaven. Do you understand? New heaven, new earth, that which is broken, made new again. Isaiah 35, the deserts, the deserts will bloom. Amos 9, desolate mountains will bear fruit and produce wine. And maybe beer. I don't know, deep in the Hebrew, I don't know. Isaiah 65, no more weeping. Wolf and lamb will sleep and lie down together. Isaiah 11, no one will hurt or destroy anything. Habakkuk 2, God's knowledge and glory will fill the earth. By the way, that when God is reigning on his throne on this new earth, the new heaven, new earth, and the, and the separation between the two is, is non-existent, then God's glory will produce the light. No more shadows. God's glory will cover the earth. Romans 8 says, and there should be a loud amen if we were more Pentecostal on this one. New bodies. Oh, thank you, God. I woke up this morning with a pulled muscle in my neck. What did I do to get that pulled muscle? I went to sleep. How does that even happen? Pull a muscle picking up my water bottle. New bodies. And they're going to be good with as many abs as you want. Doesn't say that in the scriptures, but I'm gonna, I'm gonna guess. You all have abs, they're just some of them buried. The teaching of the second coming is about restoration and healing, end of poverty, end of injustice, end of disease, end of kids being blown up, end of disease and hunger and death. Where does the world find that hope? In a world leader hustling to the front? In a good-looking world leader looking for a photo opportunity? Is that our hope? In there's been some peacekeeping mission? In dropping bombs and throwing missiles? Is that our hope? Giving more money to that which people who, who are in need? Does that help? Yes. Is that our hope? No. Our hope has to transcend anything that we physically can see and touch. And it says that in Romans. Our hope must be buried in the hope that Jesus Christ is going to come back and He's going to make everything new again. And friends, if you know Jesus this morning, you get to be in on that. It makes me excited. Because when life sucks, there's hope. When you're in the winter, summer's coming. When you sit, you have to hold the hand of somebody who is hurting, who's experienced deep loss and pain. You can look them in the eyes and say, there's hope. Jesus is bringing summer back. Hope starts to build. 
See, this is good news for people whose lives are filled with bad news. That's why Jesus says, watch for my return. Look forward to it. This is going to be a good thing. I remember when I was a much younger Christian, I remember thinking, God, I don't want Jesus to come back. I've got life to live. I want to get married. I want to have children. I want to, I want to, I want to have success. I want to earn money. And then as I've gotten older, I'm like, man, that is going to be nothing compared to the beauty of this new earth. That's why he says, watch. So it makes a difference to our problems, what you place your hope in. It also makes a difference to our behavior. Verse 32, but concerning that day or that hour, no one knows. Not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. This is how I knew that that lovely creation man didn't actually know. No one knows. Two things you can be sure of when it comes to Jesus' return. Number one, it's going to happen. Number two, you don't know when. And so therefore... How does that change the way we live today? It has to affect the way we live. And I could have chosen, as I was prayerfully considering all manner of different things, as to say, you know, it should affect the way that we speak. It should affect the way that we think. It should affect this hope, this knowledge. And then it can turn into a fear-mongering. Well, do you want to be watching that movie when Jesus comes back? You know, that, that kind of thing. Would you, do you really want to be saying that? Just imagine if Jesus came back right now and saw you doing that. You know, I could, I could go down that line, but I thought ultimately the most important question I can actually ask myself and ask this church and ask this network for those who are listening and ask you if I was over your house drinking coffee with you or something like that is this question. If you knew without a shadow of a doubt that Jesus was going to come back tomorrow, Let's, let's be generous and give 24 hours, 11.14 tomorrow morning. If you knew that Jesus was coming back, how would it change your next 24 hours? Most specifically, who would you call? What would you say? And then, why aren't we saying that? Why aren't we doing that? Why aren't we... Living that way, who would you connect with? Who would you tell about Jesus? See, if Christianity is the hope that Jesus is going to return and make everything new, and he says, listen, church, I have put in you this hope. You are the hope of this community. You are the uh, messenger of this love and hope. You go tell people. Because they need to know that there is hope. They need to know when that day comes, it will be equally beautiful as it will be dreadful. Because those that do not know him, because notice it said he's coming back for the elect. Those who don't know him will know something far from him. Everybody, you know, when people say, well, everybody, every religion leads to God. Amen. I completely agree. Every religion does lead to God. But according to the scriptures, there's only one way past him. There's only one way you actually get to live in eternity in the perfection of the new Eden, the new earth. And that is through Jesus Christ. And we have been given this message of eternity. That's why beautiful people like Sid and Jen do what they do. 
is to share the gospel. It's why people in ministry dedicate their lives to sharing the gospel. But the good news is this. Every one of you is in ministry. Every one of you is in full-time ministry. Every one of you has been given this hope. I'm a big podcast listener too. (laughs) That was awkward. I love to listen to podcasts. That's better. And uh, I was listening to a podcast this week about evangelism because I am that much of a Christian nerd that I will listen to podcasts about evangelism. And there was this uh, lovely interview going on. And one of them, gentlemen, Ed Stetzer, was quoting a recent survey that was done by Lifeway where they surveyed 4,000 churches in North America um, and all the Christians in the church. And they asked lots of different questions about their Christian life. But there was two questions in particular that really caught my interest. And, and, and the first question that caught my interest was this. How, um, how, many, of, how many Christians had, sh- had shared that they are a Christian to somebody, shared their faith to somebody outside of the church in the last year? And then the second question that piqued my interest was how many of those Christians had actually asked somebody to come to church within the last year? The overwhelming response was zero. Zero. We don't take it seriously. We don't actually believe that that is where our hope lies. Because if we did, friends, there are people you living by who are going to hell forever. Zero. The same LifeWay survey asked thousands of non-Christian, unchurched young adults, how many of you would be willing to engage in a conversation with a friend about Jesus? Young adults, thousands of them. How many of you would be willing to engage in a conversation with a friend about Jesus? You know what the overwhelming response was? 89% said yes. 90% said yes, I would like to talk about Jesus with a Christian friend. And that slams into the zero who are willing from within the church to actually open their mouths and share. Well, maybe they'll notice as I'm cutting my grass that I'm a Christian because how my lines are so straight. Only a Christian would cut my grass this well. You have to open your mouth. And I get really convicted about it. And I know I'm preaching to the choir because you're here. But look around. Look at these seats. Church, we have to pray what Paul prayed in Ephesians 1. God, Give them a revelation. Enlighten their hearts that they might know the calling that they have been given. And it's a calling of hope. Because in you, friends, in me, is the hope of this world. The hope of this world. Hope lives here. Hope lives here. And I'm not saying this to make guilt or condemn. This isn't a drive-by guilting. This is a genuine, oh, God help us. I really believe 
that Jesus is coming back with this new perfection and friends. Summer is coming. If we knew he was coming tomorrow, who would we call? What would we say? Who would we tell about Jesus? And then why are we not saying it? Well, what might they say? They might say, thank you. In a few years' time, they might go, I'm a Christian today because somebody from Willow Park South walked across the room and shared the gospel with me. I am so grateful. That's what they might say. So knowing Jesus returns gives us hope and it changes our behavior. Very quickly, it also changes the response that we have to people who hurt us. And I'm going I'm to fly through this. I want you to study this yourself. But essentially, here's the teaching. Jesus is coming back and he's going to occupy a now empty throne, the Bible says. And he's going to be king of this new earth and new heaven. And he is going to judge God is going to judge those who are uh, who have gone before us, who are alive at the time. He's going to judge them. And right now that throne of judgment is empty because Jesus has yet to come back and to and to judge. And so here's the teaching that when somebody hurts us, what we do is we jump into that throne and we judge them and we bring condemnation on them and we want to punish them. But let me assure you, those people in your life who have hurt you, people who have abused you, have let you down, that you feel bitter towards, you are not the judge. You are not God because you don't know every part of their circumstance. But Jesus is and there will be a day when when he will bring vengeance. Now you don't go, yes, God's going to come and melt your head. You actually have a motivation now to share the gospel, to be the gospel, to pray for this person because you know God will come back and judge. You go, Glenn, that's harsh. Why would God want to come and judge? If there is no judgment day, What about the enormous amount of injustice that has been happening in our world? If there's no judgment day, then there are only two things we can do. That we either lose all hope, or we can be secure in the knowledge that God is the judge. And one day, everything will be made new. So when bad things happen, we mustn't run and sit on the throne. When bad things happen, we need to remember that He is God and we are not. And is that an easy thing to do? Absolutely not. But who are you sat on the throne over right now? Who am I sat on the throne in judgment over right now? Maybe it's time to shift our jaxies off the throne, allow God to one day sit on the throne and be respectful of the fact that He is God and we are not. And to be quick to share the gospel rather than the judgment. So the teaching of the second coming of Christ in conclusion has the power to change the way we look at hopeless situations because he is going to make everything new. It changes the way we behave because it should cause us to share the gospel, the good news of this hope with people who are around us. And it should change the way that we have an attitude towards people who have done us wrong. So when we look at the second coming teaching, it's not about, well, when and is it pre-post or a millennial? Is it is it tribulation or we going to get raptured and blah, blah. It's none of that that concerns Jesus. Jesus' concern is, are you ready? Are you awake? Are you finding hope in the fact that summer is coming? And is it changing the way you live? Matthew 27, it says this, the earth quaked, the rocks split, 
the sun went out and it was utter darkness. That scripture is referring to the first judgment. See, there was a judgment day that precedes the judgment day. This judgment day is actually the day that all of God's judgment came upon Jesus. And he took our punishment. He took our punishment so we could have his hope. He took our rejection so we could be accepted. He took our death so we could have life. He took all of that judgment upon himself, all the sin and the shame and the brokenness that is in you and I, and it dies on the cross with him and God's judgment. God separated himself from that. That's why, oh God, oh God, why have you forsaken me? He took it on the cross. It dies with him. And then he says, now you go in this newness of life. Those who believe, those who submit to that can have his righteousness. He gets the darkness so we can get the light. That's Christianity. That you are the light of the world. His light in you, in that darkness. And friends, in the last week where there's been so much darkness, it's taken my breath away. You are the light. You are the hope. I am the hope of this generation. Not any world leader or social justice system or politics or anything like that. That will come and it will go. And can I tell you, every world leader, present and past, will bow their knee to the coming Jesus. He ain't going to be jostling for position because he's already in position. Isn't that great? So you can watch the TV and the internet and kind of smile to yourself and go, not in judgment, but you can go, you know what? Jesus is going to make this all right. Does that mean we hands off? No, we go and we be the light. So as I finish, this is why this message is so important. As I finish, it brings us to two places. It brings us to a place of great joy and rejoicing that we have hope in Jesus Christ's return. He's going to come and he's going to make things beyond perfect. Thank you, Lord. It can also bring you to the place where you may feel convicted by the lack of enthusiasm and passion that we show towards sharing this gospel with others. Because they will be impacted. Maybe if you do not know Jesus, then it's time that you pray and say, thank you, Jesus, that you are willing to come and take judgment for me. Forgive me, Lord. Forgive me for trying to come on my own good merits. You know, if you do that, (laughs) listen, if you do that, the next time you meet Jesus, and you will, you'll stand by him, gloriously forgiven and complete, looking forward to a new heaven and a new earth forever and ever. Amen. Dear Lord, This message, as you know, has convicted me this week. God, I don't place huge weight on surveys, 
But God, there is nothing that that survey that I quoted says that doesn't seem to be confirmed. But God, please forgive us for our unwillingness to share the hope with a broken and needy world. Lord, for our unwillingness to give money towards that cause. Our unwillingness to give money and energy and time and talent. God, that we would prioritize in our own timekeeping other things that ultimately don't matter. But Father, as parents, when we have prioritized activity over faith, forgive us. God, the times that we have ignored an opportunity to share the gospel, forgive us. But God, I pray like my brother, the Apostle Paul, prayed many years ago. That we might know that, Lord, that there would be a revelation inside each and every one of us. A revelation of your love, of your hope of your freedom, your light, that hope lives in here. That, Lord, that you would as a church give us that revelation. Because, Lord, I am so thankful that you are returning and you will put everything right. Oh, what a beautiful thing that's going to be. And so, Lord, I thank you that we can anchor into that even in the midst of a dreadful and broken world. Lord, I pray that hope rises in us and literally overflows through our mouths, through our prayers, into the community around us. Thank you, Lord. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. We're going to sing. And I don't know what we're going to sing, but I'm sure there is something in this song that resonates with what I've said. But I, I encourage you as we sing that you would pray and you would thank God for the hope that is found in Him. And maybe you pray for the boldness to share that hope. And then maybe you would consider coming to our AGM this afternoon and our Willow One prayer tomorrow night because both of those are connected and in alignment with this message. We want to see hope brought to our city through this church. And my prayer as your pastor this week is that you will find beautiful time to soak and gaze upon the beauty of this incredible message that Jesus is coming. And it's going to be great. It's going to be wonderful. Praise God. Thank you, Josh.